has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Holy fire, burn away my desire for anything that is not Thanks for joining us at The Hope of Our Calling. Let's get started in our study of First Peter. Well, welcome back to Hope of Our Calling. This is Kendra, and we once again are in the epistle of First Peter, chapter 2. This week we're going to start at verse 8, and this is what it says. Speaking of Jesus, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I can hear it out there. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Okay, so last week when we were talking about being living stones, fitly fitted together as Ephesians says, did you get that picture in your head of each one of us having a deposit of the Holy Spirit? Now imagine, when we do as Jesus says, they'll know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. When we do our utmost to seek God's help and assistance and guidance, when the fleshly part of us that God is still working out butts up against another brother or sister's fleshly side. And there's conflict. We saw it with Paul and Barnabas and Silas. We did see it in the New Testament. It happens. But we must extend that grace and mercy that we received unto each other. And when we do that and we come together in koinonia, we come together in that sweet fellowship, the Holy Spirit is brilliantly shining because each deposit of the Holy Spirit is coming together. Meditate on that. Because When we do that, when we love one another and forgive one another and have mercy and grace for one another, God is so pleased. And that temple that he is building here on earth, which is his church, is beautiful and magnificent. And that temple and church is being built on the cornerstone, which is Christ. He is the only perfect and true cornerstone of this building. Now, last week I shared out of the complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to do that again now because I want to give you an easier look at what we're studying today. We're going to start a little bit into uh, verse 7 and then we'll continue on. So, in the latter part of 7 it says, the very stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We studied that. Also, he is a stone that will make people stumble, a rock over which they will trip. They are stumbling at the word 
disobeying it as had been planned. But you're a chosen people, the king's kohanim, the holy nation, the people of God to possess. Why? In order for you to declare the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Before you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Life Application Study Bible, it says, Jesus Christ is called the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes people fall. Some will stumble over Christ because they reject him or refuse to believe that he is who he says he is. But Psalm 118.22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, the most important part of God's building, the church. People who refuse to believe in Christ have made the greatest mistake of their lives, and they have stumbled over the one person who could save them and give meaning to their lives, and they've fallen into God's hand for judgment. God cannot change his character. He has to be a righteous and true judge, even though he's gracious and merciful. But if we, at the point that we meet him face to face, have not obtained the mercy and grace that he's displayed throughout history, standing in front of him will not be the time to beg for it. It won't happen. And this is the greatest tragedy of all. Because God's Spirit has been beckoning to everyone to come before his throne of grace and mercy. And what they don't realize is that the thing that they're rejecting is the very thing that we've come to treasure. Because we've been born again by his Spirit and his Spirit dwells within us and then guides us into all truth. We can't understand truth without God's Spirit since God's the Creator. How could we possibly know what's going on unless we have an intimate relationship with the Creator who guides us into all truth? Because the rest of it is is just deception. And that's what they don't realize. They don't realize that Jesus is the only one that is trustworthy. And that we are considered precious to him. And that there will be a day of judgment. Jesus is a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling for that fleshly pride and resistance that demands to have its own way, not realizing that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things who could know them. Psalm 36, 7 through 10 says, How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, or the bounty of thy house. And thou shalt make them drink of the rivers of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness 
to the upright in heart. What a beautiful stretch of scripture to describe what is being given to those who trust in the Lord. Let's go to Psalm 16, verse 11. It says, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a God I am so blessed to know loves me. Matthew eleven six says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's the tragedy for those that he becomes the offense and the stumbling block for. They miss out on so much. The verse goes on to say that they're stumbling at the word. They're disobeying it as has been planned. Because God is eternal or omniscient, which is basically two Latin words put together, one meaning all and the other meaning knowledge. So all knowledge, God is omniscient, knowing all, knowing our beginning and our end simultaneously. He is, as I've mentioned previously, like the blimp in the sky above a parade. He sees both the start and the finish. With that knowledge comes everything. He knows everything about us. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. God knows everything, including those that will never receive him. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven states that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And 2 Peter 3, 9 says, that he doesn't want anyone to perish. But God knows who will choose him and who will not. And for those that will choose him, there will be pleasures forevermore. For those that reject him, there will be judgment. And that judgment will be eternity without God's love and light. The Bible says it will be an eternity of darkness, and gnashing of teeth. Death has an appointment with God. And for those that have received him and put their utmost trust in him are not subject to a second death, the Bible says. But unfortunately, those who, for whatever reason, allow their pride to say, I'm going to do it my way, will find quickly that the creator of the universe has made provision for allowing us to know how much he loves us and to receive that love. So verse 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So let's start with a chosen people or a chosen generation. Don't you just love that? I do. I like knowing that I've been selected to be on his team because he knew I would fall in love with him. Remember when you were younger and people were picking out teams? I don't know if you ever had that experience where you were one of the last ones to be chosen. It was a horrible feeling. We don't have that feeling. We know that God says that we are chosen. Paul said it in Ephesians. Peter is saying it now. We are chosen. Imagine Peter who denied Jesus three times, who was a rough, tough fisherman. Jesus said, come follow me. And even when Peter rejected him, Jesus still redeemed him. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. So what does generation mean here? Tozer says that this word generation in its original language means the equivalent of a new breed. We are a new breed of man, a new breed of people. We're a new creature in Christ. And as we studied in the first chapter of 1 Peter, it says, Praise be to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We may look like the rest of humanity, but the spirit that drives us is leading us to heaven and eternity with God. But the original spirit we were born into, that spirit of the flesh, that sinful nature that controls us until we have Christ, that spirit is filled with pride and lust to have its own way. We're not of that anymore. We're a new breed. Last week I read to you from Wisdom for Today by Pastor Chuck. And it said that being sanctified is to be set apart from the world and freed from the world's influences, that we might be committed and dedicated to him because we were God's own property. I like being God's property. I like knowing that I am owned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Gives me great peace. As this new creation, we also have different jobs and titles or parts. Just like a father is also a husband. He is also a son. He might be a brother. He might be an uncle or an employee or a boss. He's got different facets to him. So too are we. We are now a royal priesthood. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the latter part of verse 5 and 6, it says, To him who loved us and washed us from all our sins in his own blood, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, 
when we look in scripture, we always want to take the full context of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. So this particular terminology, a royal priesthood, started my brain itching. Because in the Old Testament, the royal line was the line of Judah. And the priestly line was from the Levi, the tribe of Levi. Jesus was a descendant of the line of Judah. But the thing we need to remember is that Jesus is from the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Jesus' father, or conceiving power, is God. So too are we as born-again believers. John chapter 1 verse 13 says, However, we are who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are likened to Christ because we are that new breed and that new creation. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 speaks about Jesus being our high priest. It says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Remember, he became flesh and dwelt among us. But we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He is our high priest. We go to him. We are considered a royal priesthood. He is who we go to for counsel. He is who we seek for help and power to overcome that flesh that wants to continue to resurrect itself and thrive. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20 says, Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So who was Melchizedek and why am I bringing him up? Hold on, I'll tell you. Melchizedek was obviously a God-fearing, in quotations here, man. For his name means king of righteousness and king of Salem, which also means king of peace. He was a priest of the most high God, Hebrews 7, 1 and 2 says. He recognized God as creator of heaven and earth. What else is known about him? There is four main theories about who this Melchizedek is. And here's the first one. Melchizedek was a respected king of that region. Abram, before he was Abraham, Abram was simply showing him respect that he deserved. Because, see, back in Genesis, Abram had gone out to war to retrieve Lot and Lot's family that had been taken captive. When Abram went out and won that war, he also obtained booty from that war. And when he was returning to his homeland, he was met by Melchizedek. And Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek. 
We don't see that reference or that practice anywhere else around that time period. It's something new and different. So one theory is that Abram was simply showing him respect. The second theory is that the name of Melchizedek may have been a standing title for all the kings of Salem. Third theory, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Hebrews 7.3 speaks of this. A type is an Old Testament event or teaching that is so closely related to what Christ did that it illustrates a lesson about Christ. And the Old Testament is filled with that. Here's the final theory. Melchizedek was an appearance on earth of the pre-incarnate Christ in a temporary bodily form. Personally, I'm going with theory four. This occurred to me as I thought about this because Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, but he's also a high priest unto the most high God. He is both. And we already have a reference to Jesus coming in the flesh, excuse me, the Lord coming in the flesh several times. But one in particular was found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And it goes on to talk about how Abram prepared a meal for the Lord and his two companions. Those two companions went on to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Those were the angels that are spoken about. While Abram began to intercede with the Lord for Sodom. Remember that debate? If there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, will you still destroy the city? So that's my theory. I believe scripture backs up this theory. In Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm, it says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. The Bible's got 12 references to this king that Abraham gave tithes to. If you want to do your own research on this to see if you come up with the same opinion that I do, here's the scripture references. You got your pencil? Here it is. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. Luke chapter 3, verse 31. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 20. And all the rest are going to be in Hebrews 7. 7, Chapter 7, verse 1, verse 10 and 11, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 21. Do you see it? This Melchizedek is spoken abundantly about in the New Testament as well as the Old. And yet, there's really no understanding of who he is. 
This is known as a Christophany, where Jesus appeared in the Old Testament. As a royal priesthood, we have the responsibility to do priestly duties, to bless people, to pray for people and their needs, bringing them before the Lord, and being also his example of righteousness, love, grace, and mercy. That is a huge verse in 1 Peter chapter 2. But we're not done yet. We're also called a holy nation. Again, we're called to be separate from the unholiness of this world, putting off the earthly garments for his robes of righteousness. He's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And we cannot allow our ears to become numb to his still small voice of guidance. That's why we spend time in his word, because his word exhorts us unto righteousness and, yes, chastens us in those times when we're numb and we're not listening. If we spend time in his word, if we return to the things we did in the beginning, concentrated on our devotional time, God is faithful, faithful to speak to us. He goes on to call us a peculiar people. And I'm not sure I like being called peculiar. But bear in mind what we've spoken about. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, according to Isaiah 53 and 3, and the testimony of his death and crucifixion. John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Remember, we talked about it before. He didn't fit their image of the Messiah. They wanted a Messiah, an anointed one, a deliverer that would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. He wasn't interested in that moment in time. He was interested in all of humanity, using the Jewish people, that small portion of people, to call them to obey first and then to reveal him to the rest of the world. John 15, 18, and 19 says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you, because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. We are the new breed, remember? And Titus chapter 2, 14 says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity or sin, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous for good works. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4.13 says. And John 16.33 says, I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Yes, we're a peculiar people, but that's all according to God's plan. And finally, that you should show forth the praises of him 
who hath called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Is there anything more glorious than being able to see the truth? I was blind, but now I see. But that sight is not just for us. We are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. For what purpose? To continue the work of our Lord. To testify to others of his transforming power in and through our lives. To show forth his mercy and his love. Remember that Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For more information about Kendra Martin and Hope of Our Calling, you can email her at kendramartinministries at gmail.com or visit the website at www.hopeofourcalling.org.